23, him also brooded the awful shadow of insanity. His first work, Oriental Eclogues 1742, is romantic in feeling, but is written in the prevailing mechanical couplets. All his later work is romantic in both thought and expression. His, Ode on the Popular Superstitions of the Highlands, 1750 is an interesting event in the Romantic Revival, for it introduced a new world, of witches, pygmies, fairies, and medieval kings, for the imagination to play in Collins's best-known poems are the odes, to simplicity, to fear, to the passions, the little unnamed lyric beginning, How sleep the brave, and the exquisite, Ode to Evening, in reading the latter. One is scarcely aware that the lines are so delicately balanced that they have no need of rhyme to accentuate their melody. George Crabbe 1754-1832. Crabbe is an interesting combination of realism and romanticism. His work of depicting common life being, at times, vaguely suggestive of Fielding's novels. The Village 1783. A poem without a rival as a picture of the workingman of his age, is sometimes like Fielding in its coarse vigor and again like Dryden in its precise versification, the poem was not successful at first, and Crabbe abandoned his literary dreams, for over twenty years he settled down as a clergyman in a country parish, observing keenly the common life about him, then he published more poems, exactly like the village, which immediately brought him fame and money, they brought him also the friendship of Walter Scott, who, like others, regarded Crabbe as one of the first poets of the age, these later poems, The Parish Register 1807, The Borough 1810, Tales in Verse 1812, and Tales of the Hall 1819, are in the same strain. They are written in couplets, they are reflections of nature and of country life, they contain much that is sordid and dull, but are nevertheless real pictures of real men and women, just as Crabbe saw them, and as such they are still interesting. Goldsmith and Burns had idealized the poor and we admire them for their sympathy and insight. It remained for Crabbe to show that in wretched fishing villages, in the lives of hard-working men and women, children, laborers, smugglers, paupers, all sorts and conditions of common men, there is abundant romantic without exaggerating or idealizing their vices and virtues. James McPherson 1736-1796 In McPherson we have an unusual figure who catered to the new romantic interest in the old epic heroes, and won immense though momentary fame, by a series of literary forgeries. McPherson was a Scotch schoolmaster, an educated man, but evidently not over-tender of conscience, whose imagination had been stirred by certain old poems which he may have heard in Gaelic among the Highlanders. In 1760 he published his fragments of ancient poetry collected in the Highlands, and alleged that his work was but a translation of Gaelic manuscripts. Whether the work of itself would have attracted attention is doubtful, but the fact that an abundance of literary material might be awaiting discovery led to an interest such as now attends the opening of an Egyptian tomb, and a subscription was promptly raised in Edinburgh to send McPherson through the Highlands to collect more manuscripts. The result was the epic Fingal 1762, that lank and lamentable counterfeit of poetry as Swinburne calls it, which the author professed to have translated from the Gaelic of the poet Ocean. Its success was astonishing, and Macpherson followed it up with more 1763, another epic in the same strain. In both these works Macpherson succeeds in giving an air of primal grandeur to his heroes, the characters are big and shadowy, the imagery is at times magnificent, the language is a kind of chanting, 
bombastic prose, now Thingol arose in his might and thrice he reared his voice. Cromwell answered around, and the sons of the desert stood still. They bent their red faces to earth, ashamed at the presence of Thingol. He came like a cloud of rain in the days of the sundown when slow it rolls on the hill, and fields expect the shower. Swaran beheld the terrible king of Morvan, and stopped in the midst of his course. Dark he leaned on his spear rolling his red eyes around. Silent and tall he seemed as an oak on the banks of Luber, which had its branches blasted of old by the lightning of heaven. His thousands pour around the hero, and the darkness of battle gathers on the hill. The publication of this gloomy, imaginative work produced a literary storm. A few critics, led by Dr. Johnson, demanded to see the original manuscripts, and when Macpherson refused to produce them, the Oceanic poems were branded as a forgery, nevertheless they had enormous success. Macpherson was honored as a literary explorer, he was given an official position, carrying a salary for life, and at his death, in 1796, he was buried in Westminster Abbey, Blake, Burns, and indeed most of the poets of the age were influenced by this sham poetry, even the scholarly Gray was deceived and delighted with passion, and men as far apart as Gurdon and Napoleon praised it immoderately, Thomas Chatterton 1750-1770. This marvelous boy, to whom Keats dedicated his Endymion, and who is celebrated in Shelley's Adonais, is one of the saddest and most interesting figures of the Romantic Revival. During his childhood he haunted the old church of St. Mary Redcliffe, in Bristol, where he was fascinated by the medieval air of the place, and especially by one old chest, known as Caninja's Coffer, containing musty documents which had been preserved for three hundred years, with strange, uncanny intentness the child poured over these relics of the past, copying them instead of his writing book, until he could imitate not only the spelling and language but even the handwriting of the original. Soon after the Russian forgeries appeared, Chatterton began to produce documents, apparently very old, containing medieval poems, legends, and family histories, centering around two characters, Thomas Rowley, priest and poet, and William K. Ninge. Merchant of Bristol in the days of Henry VI. It seems incredible that the whole design of these medieval romances should have been worked out by a child of eleven, and that he could reproduce the style and the writing of Caxton's day so well that the printers were deceived, but such is the fact. More and more Rowley papers, as they were called, were produced by Chatterton, apparently from the archives of the old church, in reality from his own imagination, delighting a large circle of readers and deceiving all but Gray and a few scholars who recognized the occasional misuse of 15th century English words. All this work was carefully finished, and bore the unmistakable stamp of literary genius. Reading now his, Ella, or the, Ballad of Charite, or the long poem in ballad style called, Bristol Tragedy, it is hard to realize that it is a boy's work. At 17 years of age Chatterton went for a literary career to London where he soon afterwards took poison and killed himself in a fit of childish despondency, brought on by poverty and hunger. Thomas Percy 1729-1811, to Percy, Bishop of the Irish Church, in Dromer, we are indebted for the first attempt at a systematic collection of the folk songs and ballads which are counted among the treasures of a nation's literature. In 1765 he published, in three volumes, his famous relics of ancient English poetry. The most valuable part of this work is the remarkable collection of old English and Scottish ballads, such as Chevy Chase, The Nut Brown Matey, Children of the Wood, 
Battle of Otterburn, and many more, which but for his labor might easily have perished. We have now much better and more reliable editions of these same ballads, for Percy garbled his materials, adding and subtracting freely, and even inventing a few ballads of his own. Two motives probably influenced him in this. First, the different versions of the same ballad varied greatly, and Percy, in changing them to suit himself, took the same liberty as had many other writers in dealing with the same material. Second, Percy was under the influence of Johnson and his school, and thought it necessary to add a few elegant ballads to atone for the rudeness of the more obsolete poems. That sounds queer now. Used as we are to exactness in dealing with historical and literary material, but it expresses the general spirit of the age in which he lived. Notwithstanding these drawbacks, Percy's relics marks an epoch in the history of Romanticism, and it is difficult to measure its influence on the whole Romantic movement. Scott says of it, The first time I could scrape a few shillings together, I bought myself a copy of these beloved volumes, nor do I believe I ever read a book half so frequently, or with half the enthusiasm. Scott's own poetry is strongly modeled upon these early ballads, and his minstrelsy of the Scottish border is due chiefly to the influence of Percy's work. Besides the relics, Percy has given us another good work in his Northern Antiquities 1770 translated from the French of Mallet's History of Denmark. This also was of immense influence, since it introduced to English readers a new and fascinating mythology, more rugged and primitive than that of the Greeks, and we are still, in music as in letters, under the spell of Thor and Odin, of Free and the Valkyr Maidens, and of that stupendous drama of passion and tragedy which ended in the Twilight of the Gods. The literary word owes a debt of gratitude to Percy, who wrote nothing of importance himself, but who, by collecting and translating the works of other men, did much to hasten the triumph of Romanticism in the 19th century. I, I, I. The first English novelists The chief literary phenomena of the complex 18th century are the reign of so-called classicism, the revival of Romantic poetry, and the discovery of the modern novel. Of these three, the last is probably the most important. Aside from the fact that the novel is the most modern, and at present the most widely read and influential type of literature, we have a certain pride in regarding it as England's original contribution to the world of letters. Other great types of literature, like the epic, the romance, and the drama, were first produced by other nations, but the idea of the modern novel seems to have been worked out largely on English soil, and in the number and the fine quality of her novelists. England has hardly been rivaled by any other nation. Before we study the writers who developed this new type of literature, it is well to consider briefly its meaning and history. Meaning of the novel. Probably the most significant remark made by the ordinary reader concerning a work of fiction takes the form of a question, is it a good story? For the reader of today is much like the child and the primitive man in this respect that he must be attracted and held by the story element of a narrative before he learns to appreciate its style or moral significance. The story element is therefore essential to the novel, but where the story originates is impossible to say. As well might we seek for the origin of the race, for wherever primitive men are found, there we see them gathering eagerly about the storyteller. In the halls of our Saxon ancestors the scop and the tale-bringer were ever the most welcome guests and in the bark wigwams of the American Indians the man who told the legends of Hiawatha had an audience quite as attentive as that which gathered at the Greek festivals, to hear the story of Ulysses's wanderings, to man's instinct or innate love for a story we are indebted for all our literature, 
and the novel must in some degree satisfy this instinct, or fail of appreciation. The second question which we ask concerning a work of fiction is, how far does the element of imagination enter into it? For upon the element of imagination depends, largely, our classification of works of fiction into novels, romances, and mere adventure stories. The divisions here are as indefinite as the borderland between childhood and youth, between instinct and reason, but there are certain principles to guide us. We note, in the development of any normal child, that there comes a time when for his stories he desires knights, giants, elves, fairies, witches, magic, and marvelous adventurers which have no basis in experience. He tells extraordinary tales about himself, which may be only the vague remembrances of a dream or the creations of a dawning imagination, both of which are as real to him as any other part of life. When we say that such a child romances, we give exactly the right name to it, for this sudden interest in extraordinary beings and events marks the development of the human imagination, running right at first, because it is not guided by reason, which is a later development and to satisfy this new interest the romance was invented, the romance island originally, a work of fiction in which the imagination is given full play without being limited by facts or probabilities, it deals with extraordinary events, with heroes whose powers are exaggerated, and often adds the element of superhuman or supernatural characters, it is impossible to draw the line where romance ends, but this element of excessive imagination and of impossible heroes and incidents is its distinguishing mark in every literature. Where the novel begins it is likewise impossible to say, but again we have a suggestion in the experience of every reader. There comes a time, naturally and inevitably, in the life of every youth when the romance no longer enthralls him. He lives in a world of facts, gets acquainted with men and women, some good, some bad, but all human and he demands that literature shall express life as he knows it by experience. This is the stage of the awakened intellect, and in our stories the intellect as well as the imagination must now be satisfied. At the beginning of this stage we delight in Robinson Crusoe, we read eagerly a multitude of adventure narratives and a few so-called historical novels, but in each case we must be lured by a story, must find heroes and moving accidents by flood and field to appeal to our imagination and though the hero and the adventurer may be exaggerated, they must both be natural and within the bounds of probability. Gradually the element of adventure or surprising incident grows less and less important, as we learn that true life is not adventurous, but a plain, heroic matter of work and duty, and the daily choice between good and evil. Life is the most real thing in the world now, not the life of kings, or heroes, or superhuman creatures but the individual life with its struggles and temptations and triumphs or failures, like our own, and any work that faithfully represents life becomes interesting. So we drop the adventure story and turn to the novel, for the novel is a work of fiction in which the imagination and the intellect combine to express life in the form of a story and the imagination is always directed and controlled by the intellect. It is interested chiefly, not in romance or adventure, but in men and women as they are, It aims to show the motives and influences which govern human life, and the effects of personal choice upon character and destiny. Such is the true novel, and as such it opens a wider and more interesting field than any other type of literature. Precursors of the novel, before the novel could reach its modern stage, of a more or less sincere attempt to express human life and character, it had to pass through several centuries of almost imperceptible development. 
Among the early precursors of the novel we must place a collection of tales known as the Greek romances, dating from the 2nd to the 6th centuries. These are imaginative and delightful stories of ideal love and marvelous adventure, which profoundly affected romance writing for the next thousand years. A second group of predecessors is found in the Italian and Spanish pastoral romances, which were inspired by the eclogues of Virgil. These were extremely popular in the 14th and 15th centuries, and their influence is seen later in Sydney's Arcadia, which is the best of this type in English. The third and most influential group of predecessors of the novel is made up of the romances of chivalry, such as are found in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. It is noticeable, in reading these beautiful old romances in different languages, that each nation changes them somewhat, so as to make them more expressive of national traits and ideals. In a word, the old romance tends inevitably towards realism, especially in England, where the excessive imagination is curbed and the heroes become more human. In Mallory, in the unknown author of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and especially in Chaucer, we see the effect of the practical English mind in giving these old romances a more natural setting, and in making the heroes suggest, though faintly, the men and women of their own day, the Canterbury Tales with their story interest and their characters delightfully true to nature, have in them the suggestion, at least, of a connected story whose chief aim is to reflect life as it is. In the Elizabethan age the idea of the novel grows more definite. In Sydney's Arcadia 1580, a romance of chivalry, the pastoral setting at least is generally true to nature, our credulity is not taxed, as in the old romances, by the continual appearance of magic or miracles, and the characters though idealized till they become tiresome, occasionally give the impression of being real men and women. In Bacon's The New Atlantis 1627 we have the story of the discovery by mariners of an unknown country, inhabited by a superior race of men, more civilized than ourselves, an idea which had been used by Moore in his Utopia in 1516. These two books are neither romances nor novels, in the strict sense, but studies of social institutions. They use the connected story as a means of teaching moral lessons, and of bringing about needed reforms, and this valuable suggestion has been adopted by many of our modern writers in the so-called problem novels and novels of purpose. Nearer to the true novel is Lodge's romantic story of Rosalind, which was used by Shakespeare in As You Like It. This was modeled upon the Italian novella, or short story, which became very popular in England during the Elizabethan age. In the same age we have introduced into England the Spanish picaresque novel from Picaro, a knave or rascal, which at first was a kind of burlesque on the medieval romance, and which took for its hero some low scoundrel or outcast, instead of a knight, and followed him through a long career of scandals and villainies. One of the earliest types of this picaresque novel in English is Nash's The Unfortunate Traveler, or The Life of Jack Wilton 1594, which is also a foreigner of the historical novel since its action takes place during that gorgeous interview between Henry VII and the King of France on the field of the cloth of gold. In all these short stories and picaresque novels the emphasis was laid not so much on life and character as on the adventures of the hero, and the interest consisted largely in wondering what would happen next, and how the plot would end. The same method is employed in all trashy novels and it is especially the bane of many modern story writers. This excessive interest in adventures or incidents for their own sake, and not for their effect on character, is what distinguishes the modern adventure story from the true novel. In the Puritan age we approached still nearer to the modern novel, 
especially in the work of Bunyan, and as the Puritan always laid emphasis on character, stories appeared having a definite moral purpose. Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress 1678 differs from the Fairy Queen, and from all other medieval allegories, in this important respect, that the characters, far from being bloodless abstractions, are but thinly disguised men and women. Indeed, many a modern man, reading the story of the Christian, has found in it the reflection of his own life and experience. In The Life and Death of Mr. Badman 1682 we have another and even more realistic study of a man as he was in Bunyan's day. These two striking figures, Christian and Mr. Badman, belong among the great characters of English fiction. Bunyan's good work, his keen insight, his delineation of character, and his emphasis upon the moral effects of individual action, was carried on by Addison and Steele some thirty years later. The character of Sir Roger D. Coverley is a real reflection of English country life in the 18th century, and with Steele's domestic sketches in The Tatler, The Spectator, and The Guardian 1709-1713, we definitely cross the borderland that lies outside of romance, and enter the region of character study where the novel has its beginning. The discovery of the modern novel, notwithstanding this long history of fiction, to which we have called attention, it is safe to say that, until the publication of Richardson's Pamela in 1740, no true novel had appeared in any literature. By a true novel we mean simply a work of fiction which relates the story of a plain human life, under stress of emotion, which depends for its interest not on incident or adventure, but on its truth to nature. A number of English novelists Goldsmith, Richardson, Fielding, Smollett, Stern all seem to have seized upon the idea of reflecting life as an island in the form of a story and to have developed it simultaneously. The result was an extraordinary awakening of interest, especially among people who had never before been greatly concerned with literature. We are to remember that, in previous periods, the number of readers was comparatively small, and that, with the exception of a few writers like Langland and Bunyan, authors wrote largely for the upper classes. In the 18th century the spread of education and the appearance of newspapers and magazines led to an immense increase in the number of readers, and at the same time the middle class people assumed a foremost place in English life and history. These new readers and this new, powerful middle class had no classic tradition to hamper them. They cared little for the opinions of Dr. Johnson and the famous literary club, and, so far as they read fiction at all, they apparently took little interest in the exaggerated romances of impossible heroes and the picaresque stories of intrigue and villainy which had interested the upper classes. Some new type of literature was demanded. This new type must express the new ideal of the 18th century, namely, the value and the importance of the individual life. So the novel was born, expressing, though in a different way, exactly the same ideals of personality and of the dignity of common life which were later proclaimed in the American and in the French Revolution and were welcomed with rejoicing by the poets of the Romantic Revival, to tell men, not about knights or kings or types of heroes, but about themselves in the guise of plain men and women, about their own thoughts and motives and struggles, and the results of actions upon their own characters. This was the purpose of our first novelists, the eagerness with which their chapters were read in England, and the rapidity with which their work was copied abroad, show how powerfully the new discovery appealed to readers everywhere. Before we consider the work of these writers who first developed the modern novel, we must glance at the work of a pioneer, Daniel Defoe, 
whom we place among the early novelists for the simple reason that we do not know how else to classify him. Daniel Defoe 1661, 1731 to Defoe is often given the credit for the discovery of the modern novel, but whether or not he deserves that honor is an open question. Even a casual reading of Robinson Crusoe 1719, which generally heads the list of modern fiction, shows that this exciting tale is largely an adventure story, rather than the study of human character which Defoe probably intended it to be. Young people still read it as they might a dying novel, skipping its moralizing passages and hurrying on to more adventures, but they seldom appreciate the excellent mature reasons which banish the dying novel to a secret place in the hay now. While Crusoe hangs proudly on the Christmas tree or holds an honored place on the family bookshelf, Defoe's apparition of Mrs. Beale, Memoirs of a Cavalier, and Journal of the Plague Year are such mixtures of fact, fiction, and credulity that they defy classification, while other so-called novels, like Captain Singleton, Mal Flanders, and Roxana, are but little better than picaresque stories, with a deal of unnatural moralizing and repentance added for puritanical effect. In Crusoe, Defoe brought the realistic adventure story to a very high stage of its development, but his works hardly deserve to be classed as true novels, which must subordinate incident to the faithful portrayal of human life and character. Life. Defoe was the son of a London butcher named Foe, and kept his family name until he was 40 years of age, when he added the aristocratic prefix with which we have grown familiar, the events of his busy 70 years of life in which he passed through all extremes, from poverty to wealth, from prosperous brickmaker to starveling journalist, from Newgate prison to immense popularity and royal favor, are obscure enough in details, but for facts stand out clearly, which help the reader to understand the character of his work. First, Defoe was a jack at all trades, as well as a writer, his interest was largely with the working classes, and notwithstanding many questionable practices, he seems to have had some continued purpose of educating and uplifting the common people. This partially accounts for the enormous popularity of his works, and for the fact that they were criticized by literary men as being fit only for the kitchen. Second, he was a radical nonconformist in religion, and was intended by his father for the independent ministry. The Puritan zeal for reform possessed him, and he tried to do by his pen what Wesley was doing by his preaching, without, however, having any great measure of the latter's sincerity or singleness of purpose. This zeal for reform marks all his numerous works, and accounts for the moralizing to be found everywhere. Third, Defoe was a journalist and pamphleteer, with a reporter's eye for the picturesque and a newspaper man's instinct for making a good story. He wrote an immense number of pamphlets, poems, and magazine articles, conducted several papers, one of the most popular, The Review being issued from prison, and the fact that they often blew hot and cold upon the same question was hardly noticed. Indeed, so extraordinarily interesting and plausible were Defoe's articles that he generally managed to keep employed by the party in power, whether with or Tory. This long journalistic career, lasting half a century, accounts for his direct, simple, narrative style, which holds us even now by its intense reality. To Defoe's genius we are also indebted for two discoveries, the interview and the leading editorial, both of which are still in daily use in our best newspapers. The fourth fact to remember is that Defoe knew prison life, and thereby hangs a tale. In 1702 Defoe published a remarkable pamphlet called The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, 
supporting the claims of the free churches against the high flyers, i.e. Tories and Anglicans, in a vein of grim humor which recalls Swift's modest proposal. Defoe advocated hanging all dissenting ministers, and sending all members of the free churches into exile, and so ferociously realistic was the satire that both dissenters and Tories took the author liberally. Defoe was tried, found guilty of seditious libel, and sentenced to be fined, to stand three days in the pillory, and to be imprisoned. Hardly had the sentence been pronounced when Defoe wrote his hymn to the pillory, Hail Hieroglyphic State Machine contrived to punish fancy in a set of doggerel verses ridiculing his prosecutors, which Defoe, with a keen eye for advertising, scattered all over London. Crowds flocked to cheer him in the pillory, and seeing that Defoe was making popularity out of persecution, his enemies bundled him off to Newgate Prison. He turned this experience also to account by publishing a popular newspaper, and by getting acquainted with rogues, pirates, smugglers, and miscellaneous outcasts each one with a good story to be used later. After his release from prison, in 1704, he turned his knowledge of criminals to further account, and entered the government employ as a kind of spy or secret service agent. His prison experience, and the further knowledge of criminals gained in over 20 years as a spy, accounts for his numerous stories of thieves and pirates, Jonathan Wilde and Captain Avery, and also for his later novels which deal almost exclusively with villains and outcasts. When Defoe was nearly 60 years of age he turned to fiction and wrote the great work by which he is remembered. Robinson Crusoe was an instant success, and the author became famous all over Europe. Other stories followed rapidly, and Defoe earned money enough to retire to Newington and live in comfort, but not idly, for his activity in producing fiction is rivaled only by that of Walter Scott. Thus, in 1720 appeared Captain Singleton, Duncan Campbell, and Memoirs of a Cavalier, in 1722, Colonel Jack, Moll Flanders, and the amazingly realistic Journal of the Plague So the list grows with astonishing rapidity, ending with the history of the devil in 1726. In the latter year Defoe's secret connection with the government became known, and a great howl of indignation rose against him in the public print destroying in an hour the popularity which he had gained by a lifetime of intrigue and labor. He fled from his home to London, where he died obscurely, in 1731, while hiding from real or imaginary enemies. Works of Defoe. At the head of the list stands Robinson Crusoe 1719-1720, one of the few books in any literature which has held its popularity undiminished for nearly two centuries. The story is based upon the experiences of Alexander Selkirk or Selgrave, who had been marooned in the island of Juan Fernandez, off the coast of Chile, and who had lived there in solitude for five years. On his return to England in 1709, Selkirk's experiences became known, and Steele published an account of them in The Englishman, without, however, attracting any wide attention. That Defoe used Selkirk's story is practically certain, but with his usual duplicity he claimed to have written Crusoe in 1708 a year before Selkirk's return. However that may be, the story itself is real enough to have come straight from a sailor's logbook. Defoe, as shown in his Journal of the Plague Year and his Memoirs of a Cavalier, had the art of describing things he had never seen with the accuracy of an eyewitness. The charm of the story is its intense reality. In the succession, 